0: Hello world and welcome to Her Royal Science. Thank you so much for joining us for our final episode of Season 2. Today we'll be chatting with Dr. Alicia Franklin, a postdoctoral research fellow at Purdue University, studying the use of gas phase ion-ion reactions for lipid analysis using mass spectrometry. She completed her bachelor's in chemistry at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, followed by her PhD in analytical chemistry at Purdue. In addition to her academic endeavors, she is the founder and host of the Research Her podcast and is also on the planning council of STEM Noir, a research conference and wellness retreat for women of the African diaspora in STEM, bringing together hundreds of Black women and providing a sense of community to promote talent retention and success in STEM. I'm very excited to learn more about her research and her science communication endeavors, but let's start from the very beginning. Dr. Franklin? What's your story?
1: I've always been someone very interested in the math and the science. It's just been a strong subject for me. When I was starting in just, I guess, middle school, throughout high school, I was always involved in some sort of summer program. Mm -hmm. Over you know, winter program, whatever that involves STEM. So I did engineering and pharmacy. I worked as a pharmacy tech when I was in high school. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so I got a little taste of the STEM world very early on, which I know is a privilege. So um, going to college, it was a no brainer that I was going to major in some sort of STEM field. And it ended up being me majoring in chemistry. Towards the end of my bachelor's degree, it was time for me to kind of figure out what it is I was doing next. And I really thought I was gonna go pursue a master's. Mm. But when I went to talk to my research advisor, because I was doing research in a lab at the time as an undergraduate research assistant, and he told me I should not pursue a master's, but instead pursue a PhD, because even if I go and I don't complete the PhD, I will have been able to get a free master's, whereas if you enroll as a master student, more likely if you don't get any financial aid going in, you're paying for that degree. Mm, so he was just getting at the fact that with going and pursuing a PhD, if things don't work out, then I didn't have I didn't go into more student debt. Mm-hmm. That was really what made me even feel like I was capable of pursuing a PhD because I didn't know that at the time I was ready. But to have that mentor tell me, "No, I really think that you can get into a school." I went to different conferences and looking at different um, universities, and Purdue ended up being the one I applied to. I graduated analytical chemistry and got a postdoc, then another postdoc,
0: and I'm here today. That's amazing. Do you know what drew you to Purdue University? Was there a particular professor? Is it well reputed within the chemical field?
1: Yeah, so for analytical chemistry, it is the number one um, program. And that's what really um, pulled me towards Purdue. And really, they have one of the most diverse chemistry programs in the nation. Um, I say I have yet to see a program that has as many students of color, faculty who are women. I think we're ranked number two. Uh, don't quite quote me, but I'm pretty certain <laughs> that we are ranked like number two in the amount of women faculty, a percentage of women faculty in a department. Wow. Yeah, I was just very drawn to, like, just being in a space where they are trying to fight against some of the social issues that are um, happening in this country, and mind you, I I started my PhD in 2015, so, Mm -hmm. you know, this is something Purdue has been trying to get at. Of course, they're not perfect. It's still a part of the um, academic ivory tower system, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's a lot to fight against, but I'd Say they're doing the best that they can, specifically in the chemistry department.
0: That is amazing and kudos to them for doing that. Now, could you tell me a little bit more about your current research? Because the way that I introduced it was quite complex. <laughs> it was a lot of words that I think a lot of our audience might not quite recognize. So Please share that with our audience and with me as well.
1: Yeah, I recently started a new position, actually. Oh, did you? I mean, very recently. So I recently started a new position where my research more so focuses on um, environmental health and okay. pretty, yeah, and my my work is centered on looking at how the chemicals in the environment impact our health. So mm-hmm. I look at different biological samples, such as like urine or blood, and I determine um what is your exposome? So what mm-hmm. an exposome is the is the chemical, they are the chemicals that you have been exposed to throughout the duration of your life mm-hmm. um, from the environment. So for instance, we are looking at um, phthalates or mm-hmm. PFAS or the parabens and mm-hmm. determining if there are certain groups that are more exposed than others or just what are you exposed to based on the personal care products that you use or your occupation. So one of my projects involves looking at the um, bio matrices of nurses and firefighters and determining compared to office workers, are they more exposed to any certain class or type of chemicals?
0: That's such amazing work, which also has such profound societal importance. Was that one of the reasons why you chose to pursue it?
1: Yeah, one of the things I'll say about the work that I'm doing now is I've never felt like I was doing more impactful work Mm. this has made me realize why I went into the field one of the challenges though that I have to speak on because I you know it's been my experiences when you love something but you don't feel like you're getting paid what you're worth or what you deserve to be paid it's really hard to enjoy it as much as you want to. And it's just the way the system is played. It's not my organization, it's not anything that my where I work for is doing wrong. It's just the way that grants are put out and the way the government sets it. They put a cap on how much money you can make. And I just think like when you do so much when you get so much education, you know, you do you spend 10 years plus because I've been in school for the past 20 for what 25 years of my life cuz my mom, you know, she put me in pre- school really early so I've been in school such a long time and you finally make it to the end of the road and you're like okay nice now let me do something that I'm passionate about versus doing something that you make a lot of money. Mm-hmm. So I could have gone and worked in industry or a pharmaceutical company and I would have easily, you know, start making six figures or right in that range yeah. by, you know, near six figures. But nothing about me wanted to help or be a part of the system that is the pharmaceutical industry or even some of the um, industries mm-hmm. that put out these chemicals that actually are. Um, not so great for our health. So instead, I did what I'm more passionate about. But what that led to was me being in a space where now I'm not making the money that the people who also graduated with me are making. They're making double, if not triple the Mm -hmm. amount of money that I'm making because they chose to go into industry. And academia is just behind. Academic spaces are just behind in that way. You just don't quite get the pay uh that you know the people who are in the farm pharmaceutical companies are getting Mm -hmm. so that is one of the battles that i've been having with myself where it's like i love what i do i love everything about it i love the people that i work with but then it's like but if i would have chose the other route i would have been so much more uh
0: financially (laughs) stable. (laughs) Yeah. It's such an uncomfortable position that you really do have to choose. And I really don't think it's fair because like you said, when you have decades, decades of education under your belt, the reward should be as an expert in the field, monetary compensation. One of my guests a couple of episodes ago did engineering and she was a mechanical engineer. That's what she did for her PhD. And she was so torn in the same way that you're talking about it, that if I go into industry, I feel like I'm actually going to be paid what I'm worth. Mm-hmm. But then she's like, I really love the science, like the the nitty gritty engineering experiments that are for exploration's sake, for understanding's sake. But that's not really what gets monetary compensation. I think that's really disappointing.
1: Yeah. Yep. So that's been my dilemma where it's like, I really wish that there were more, there was more conversation about this so I don't feel the way I feel, which is alone. You know, it's almost like you feel like ungrateful. You know, like I shouldn't feel a way about where I am, but it's like I do think um there are other people who feel similar to me absolutely um and I've had conversations with a few people but most um people are like oh yeah it just kind of is what it is or they Mm -hmm. find ways they have to do things outside of their postdoc to then reach that next level of financial A So you're not just a postdoc. You're a postdoc plus you run some organization and this organization Mm -hmm. is um, also paying you. And so now you are in the bracket where you're making a lot of money, but also you're doing triple, quadruple the work versus I get to do my nine to five and be off work. And one of my beliefs is that we should have time to rest and what Mm -hmm. happens when you start taking on too many responsibilities is there's no off button you're Mm -hmm. working around the clock and when there isn't built in time for you to enjoy who you are and what you enjoy doing outside of work you just become this machine that is constantly producing more mm-hmm. research or more mentorship and mentorship is great but um you deserve time of absolute isolation or and doing whatever you want to do outside of your professional life mm-hmm. and i just um I really do believe that we can get caught in this cycle of productivity, 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 just out of the fact of trying to, one, climb the academic ladder, mm-hmm. but then two,
0: in some cases, make the money that you deserve. Mm-hmm, absolutely. I mean, speaking of things that you do outside of work, I think that's actually a perfect leading to your podcast. I don't know much about the origin story, but I'd love to hear more about the research. Her, love the name. I think that's so, so cool. How did it start? When did you start it? Why did you start it?
1: Yeah, I started it when I was in China and quite frankly, it was some self no it wasn't just selfish reasons but there were selfish reasons in there in Mm. my head I figured um I'd have the opportunity to speak with amazing women but um it initially was a seed in my head where I wanted to do science communication which I didn't know was a thing at the time it was Mm. like in my head I was just like I want to teach people (laughs) uh how the things that they do in um, their everyday life impacts their health that was what I told myself. I didn't at the time realize that that was science communication, even mm-hmm. though I think I probably told the story of similarly before. And I said, oh, I wanted to be a science communicator. It wasn't that I, I even knew it was a thing. I just knew that that the concept was something that I wanted to do. So I started off on YouTube, and I just think that (laughs) it started off as like a YouTube video or two, I think, where I was talking about like how um, hard water impacts your hair. That was a YouTube video I made, and then I realized like maybe this isn't the best platform for the information that I am trying to give, and it evolved into me doing a podcast and I started it and it is essentially now a podcast that talks about the research that is related to black women's health and Mm -hmm. also I talk to black women researchers in all different stages of their career so whether they're still working on their thesis or they are full time professors or someone who did research in the past and they feel like their research still impacts is still um, important today I I really just like to learn about some of the topics that are being out there I look at myself as a research um, a research advocate where I want people to know about all of these topics that are out there for them to pursue That way, you know, a lot of people don't understand what it's like to be a doctoral student Mm -hmm. or uh, pursue a doctorate. And they believe it looks like a certain thing. So some people believe you can only go to get a Ph.D. in science or you can only Mm -hmm. go in engineering. And there are all these um, different programs out there that are not these hardcore sciences. What I really like to do on the podcast is really allow people the the opportunity to learn more about what is out there. Because at the time, what I didn't see was people doing this specifically as in hearing the voices of underrepresented um, people. So I started it back in 2019, a little over two years ago. And um, that was when I was freshly in the space, in the STEM social media space, didn't really form any connections yet but it since 2019 the science girls and the engineering girls have really um started you know making their voices on social media and it's evolved so much since I remember it there has really been a huge inpouring of people and a community being built around this idea of being women in STEM and people wanting to be, um, STEM-ness. So it's been a beautiful thing to see. And like every day I, I find a new wonderful woman mm-hmm. to follow on Instagram. And so my community and networking has been off the chain, made so many connections and so many, um, collaborations with people. It's been mm-hmm. beautiful.
0: That's amazing. And I think beautiful is the perfect word for it. I love that you're also spotlighting black women as a black woman myself. I was searching for so long to see women like me who were prospering in research. And when I was looking around me while I was doing my PhD, that just was not the case. And so I thank you so much for doing this work. It is so, so powerful for the audience that might not be familiar with some of the professional challenges that Black women face, especially within academia, what are some of those challenges that you're trying to eradicate or you're passionate about eradicating when women, Black women, are pursuing STEM careers? What are the things that really come to your mind that make you go, we need to change X, Y, Z?
1: There are a few things. I'm going to speak to two today. So one of them being this idea of Standing up for yourself, mm-hmm. realizing that people will gaslight you into believing that what you're feeling is not accurate or that specifically they are right in their belief about you. And you have that choice to not believe what other people are feeling towards you. It's a very painful Experience when you are a black woman and you see the way other black women are being treated in the academic space. Mm -hmm. So then you have some type of I don't know what it's called, but it's like the trauma that you get from seeing other people's pain i don't want to call it like trans translational it's a word for it but it's essentially you see someone else being mistreated and you feel their pain
0: you know so you
1: see your black sister being left out of spaces or being told she doesn't belong here and she doesn't deserve that. She doesn't deserve that. So I specifically had an experience where I have a mentee and she got treated terrible throughout her PhD experience. And what it did for me is it really created a lot of mental challenges or pain or hurt Mm -hmm. because it's like, you want to say something, you want to speak up, right? Mm -hmm. But in so many words is like, but this is an adult woman who has already spoken up for herself. So mm-hmm. now I'm just like someone who is beating a dead horse. She She's very outspoken. She's very much able to tell people what they will and not will not say to her and she's done it. But even the fact that you can see people truly believe in the words that's coming out of their mouth of her not deserving why and you thinking like are you saying she doesn't deserve this because she's a black woman or are you Mm. saying she doesn't deserve this because of who she is. Either way it goes, you read it how you want to read it. And for me it was like they are saying this to her because she's a black woman because I can almost guarantee you if it was a white man those same words wouldn't have been used Mm -hmm. so a few things that I really want to do is like let people know that the trauma that you do experience and any type of mental health issues that you experience as you journey through your PhD program you are not alone you have Mm -hmm. you you are legitimate in those feelings and a lot of people think that oh well you know you are you know, you shouldn't feel this way because you're you're pursuing this higher education and you're mm-hmm. in this certain percent of people who actually get to do this. But honestly, academia is a space where I feel like we're gaslit into believing that we are in a collaborative space, but we are in a competitive space. Yes. Yeah. And like they keep on telling us like, oh, you're you're we're so collaborative. No, you're making us compete with each other. Mm -hmm. And then when you're done with it, you don't even know how to turn that off. You don't know how to turn off this, this idea of not working. You don't know how to turn off that competitive spirit. And it takes so much hard work to do so. Mm -hmm. And I guess where I am now is I want to to allow people that feeling of I am normal, and I am not the only one who has experienced this. I am normal, and when I see this happening to someone, it is not fake. It is not um, made up in my head that I feel this way. It is a true feeling, and no one can uh, convince me otherwise. Mm. I'm an advocate for getting the mental health care that you need, whether that be and being admitted into a mental health a care facility, whether that be getting a therapist Mm -hmm. before you get to the point of needing to go to a mental health facility. Mm -hmm. Um, If you need to take a break, I know people who now it's becoming acceptable to take a mental health break that is outside of Saturday and Sunday. A lot of professors believe, oh, you have to work this day through this day. Don't go work for that professor. Work for, even if you love their work, work for a professor that cares more about you than the production of Mm -hmm the work that you can produce. We -hmm. live in 2021. A lot of those old practices that people believed in back then... That's fine. If that if professors are still living in the 60s or the 70s or whatever, that's fine. Don't work for those people. You have to work for people who live in the times where we realize that, oh, the way we were doing things back then was actually detrimental to people's mental health. How about we fix it and we do better? But there mm-hmm. are some people who want to live in those times. Why? Because those were those were times where people cared more about producing literature and being this like huge name and all this. like That's fine but I'm choosing me yes. <laughs> and I, so I'm not going to go that route um, I could speak to a lot of like some of the traumas that uh, academia kind of puts on you but I'm still honestly working through a lot of what my like what my experiences are I've learned that it's a lot of complex trauma so it's like small things over a longer period of time yeah. so having some of my peers kind of tell me oh this um I'm not sure that this makes I'm not sure that your project is worthy of this particular group or whatever or who are you to tell me what's worthy and what's not worthy? Exactly. of being presented if i'm telling you this is what i'm doing mm-hmm. either you're gonna edit it or you're not gonna edit it mm-hmm. but you're not gonna tell me what i should and should not do if i'm already telling you that this is what i want to do yeah being undermined and under, underappreciated. I'll say this though: I did pick a really good research advisor. It was my peers.
0: It was mm. my peers.
1: It was that feeling of they wanted to pretend like they were these kind beings um, that didn't see that didn't see that I was a black woman. But baby, you see this. You see all this beautiful melanin.
0: Hey. <laughs> And is that one of the reasons why you chose to be a part of STEM Noir, which I think is absolutely beautiful as well, also celebrating melanin?
1: Yeah, I saw STEM Noir and honestly, I fell in love with the mission and I did what I could to end up being a part of it. Mm -hmm. We are preparing for our conference coming up in June. If anyone wants to learn more about the conference, it's at STEMnoir.org and um, it is a holistic retreat and Research Conference for Black Women. And we have a nice lineup that we're preparing. It's virtual this year just because of, uh, you know, it's still these COVID streets. (laughs) And we we want to keep everyone safe because we do realize that by June, everyone will not be vaccinated. And we, we just don't know what things will look like. But I became a part of it just because the mission as a whole, which is being a whole human while being in STEM was just something that really spoke to me Mm -hmm. and I appreciated the women the women that are part of the planning committee are the most phenomenal women I've ever met in my life, they've introduced me to so much they've been patient with me you know helped me through some of the toughest um times i've had. I've struggled very very much with depression and anxiety, and this year has been the best year for my for uh um, my experience as far as my experience with depression and anxiety because I didn't have any major signs for the first time in about five to seven years. Wow. Yeah, and I, I really attribute it to some of the people that I've connected with who understood what it felt like, feels like to navigate these spaces. You just mm-hmm. get into this this cycle of because there aren't very many people around me who come from where I come from and have ex- the similar experiences as me, they can't really tell me <laughs> that what I'm, how I'm feeling and what I'm experience it is okay. Mm-hmm. And you always feel wrong because you have people around you who you love to death, who are in your family or your friends who you met before you pursued a PhD who just don't understand your experience. You know, you can't really talk about these things because it you just don't feel like it's relatable, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so where I where I end up at is um just kinda of feeling very alone and What Stem Noir had allowed for me to be is in a space, in a community full of people who understand and have experienced what I've been through.
0: I have a question about how it was received by those family members and friends when you started talking about your depression and anxiety. I'm wondering if there was a learning curve to the people that you did speak to, if you did speak to people outside of the the STEM Noir board or the women that you had come in contact with who could really understand the experiences that you were going through?
1: Yeah, I feel like my experiences weren't validated until I had a major episode. I had a huge episode that involved me being hospitalized. After that, I feel like it w- People began to really see that, no, this is a serious issue and it's not a faith. It's not something that we're just going to pray away. It's mm-hmm. not something that we're just going to say, oh, it's okay. It'll get better. No worries. You're just sad. Mm-hmm. You know, everyone gets sad. It happens. Mm-hmm. When it was something where I could not, no longer had control over my belief that I deserve to be here on earth Mm. um, just because I hadn't taken care of myself in so long. You know, that is, I I believe at that point, that was when I needed a more intense help. Mm -hmm. And then after that, I just felt like I got way more support because people understood that this was not, something that i was just like you know i'm just not feeling it today it was like Mm -hmm. no there's something serious going on and i really um need to begin this process of taking care of myself
0: Mm -hmm. and of healing of, of trying to make sure that the feelings that you had were dealt with in a healthy manner and you could get to a space where you were you were feeling okay you're feeling good and are you feeling good these days
1: Yeah, I mean, I just recently moved, Mm -hmm. I moved from the Midwest Mm -hmm. to the Dallas area. Did you really? I did. I used and to live
0: in Dallas. How is it?
1: <laughs> I love it so far. It's been great. Um, way more sunlight. The gloomy... Today it is a bit gloomy, but um, overall there's a lot more like sunlight. The people are nicer. Um, better food. Because I'm from Chicago, but I was in um, Lafayette, Indiana. And so it's been a, a great transition and I'm around family. I haven't lived in... In the same city or the same within an hour's reach of um, like a, a large amount of my family for mm. over ten years now, you know. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. So going from kind of living in a college town to a big city has also been very exciting. Very exciting.
0: I I do love that you're back in your family, and I think that's a lovely lead into my next question about. What role you think your background, your city, your family, your culture had in who you are today?
1: Oh. (laughs) So I'm from the South Side of Chicago (laughs) (laughs) And which I love to talk about. I'm very much I'm a South Side girl through and through and I say it's been a beautiful thing being able to one represent my city mm-hmm. um in in such a positive light yeah. and and show the young girls who are from where I'm from And I want to say, like, I'm not from a terrible neighborhood in Chicago. Like, Mm -hmm. it wasn't, you know, too many killings in my neighborhood. Mm -hmm. It was like, you know, they did rob, they did break into your car, you know, Mm -hmm. things like that. But my neighborhood is was never too bad. And I I lived in the suburbs for a while, the the south suburbs for a while as well. Mm -hmm. And they would rob us or whatever. They would come and take our things out of our house and different things. But it wasn't like... (laughs) It, but it wasn't like terrible, you know. It was like some people, you know, they come in and they killing people, and so it, and it's funny how like you. Some people probably are gonna listen to this. Like, what do you mean there were only robberies? <laughs> <laughs> but this is all to say, like, I didn't have like I'm very privileged in that although I was from the I'm from the South Side, um, also South um, South suburbs.
0: Yeah.
1: I had such there were so there was so much privilege in my experiences and that I did have a mother who pursued higher education and mm-hmm. pursued her doctorate while I was in high school That's and awesome. so I had a mom who was a school counselor mm-hmm. so she was you know was connected throughout the uh, throughout the Chicago public school system so she was aware of things she knew my counselor Um, she knew my school counselor and I'll say this. A lot of the opportunities that were presented to me were because my my teachers saw something in me and they allowed they were like, hey, I know that this may be a good opportunity for you. Mm. But then also when it came to certain things like the FAFSA, when it was time to go to college, I never had I never struggled with filling out a FAFSA. Why? Because I had a mother who filled that out for me. That is privilege. Mm. You know, Mm -hmm. that is something that a lot of people. That that is their bottleneck in getting into college or getting financial coverage to go to college, the yeah. FAFSA, mm-hmm. and that was something I never had to deal with throughout. Um, actually, my academic career, because when I when I became a PhD student, you don't fill out a FAFSA because mm-hmm. they pay you to they pay you to go to school yeah. when you're getting you're pursuing a chemistry PhD. Yeah. So that was something that I, you know, I bit the bullet. But I think a lot of who I am. Um, I tried very much to kind of hide who I was throughout my doctoral um, pursuits because I thought I needed to look a certain way. Like I, I I remember when I was in college and I was told that I was, what did they say? Um, This is when I was on a cheerleading team. Mm. Um, I was told that I was Pretty much too aggressive. That's what they said. Oh god. When I, I, yes, yes. So I was on the cheerleading team. It was a very much white cheerleading team, mm. and I remember the girls pretty much coming together and telling our coach that I was too aggressive. <sighs> and yeah, so it led to me kind of tiptoeing out of the off of the cheerleading team mm. because I just felt like. I don't belong here. They think I'm too aggressive. And I think that that was the beginning of my struggle or my beginning in suppressing who I am and um, really expressing my character. You know, I just thought I needed to be as white cultured as possible mm-hmm. so I think when I went into my PhD I got more and more silent and I think that that is why I struggle so much with my mental health is because I felt like I had to play pretend yeah. like I was someone that I wasn't just to be accepted in these spaces and then I when it wasn't until I really started being myself where that was when I was the happiest like yeah. I became the happiest when I stepped outside of like being this person who wanted to kind of fit in. And when I went back to truly standing in who I am, that's when I enjoyed my research much more. That's when I actually pursued a position that I wanted to pursue because I enjoyed the work because Mm -hmm. I was more confident and I was able to stand in that. Yeah. um, I'm not about to be cold switching all the time at work. Like I still very much am professional, Mm -hmm. but I do, show part to me that had I been in the beginning of my PhD, I wouldn't have been because I I have these people in the back of my mind telling me you're too aggressive or mm-hmm. you, you know, because when you tell someone that you're saying you don't belong here as you are.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that word specifically has been weaponized against black women. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry that you went through that period of time where you were not yourself, your authentic self. So I kind of want to end off with a question about retrospect if you could go and talk to that 16 year old alicia from dr franklin today what would you tell her
1: i would say continue being you unapologetically Mm. Mm. you are going to run into people who are going to try and suppress you trying to tell you who you ought to be and pretty much it's going to be for their own comfort but what's going to end up happening if you do not remain true to who you are is you'll be uncomfortable and everyone else will be happy except Um, you except you (laughs) so you cannot compromise your happiness for the sake of other people you can find a nice middle but They have to find their nice middle as well because in order for you to truly embrace um, the journey that you're on, you have to be able to do it as you are or else a lot of the experience that you'll have, you probably won't remember because in what we don't talk about is when you are in a depressive state of mind, your memory is... You know, can be foggy, so you won't be able to truly experience the journey. So, as a sixteen-year-old, you are living unapologetically, and do not allow that spirit to fade away.
0: That's beautiful. I love that. Thank you so so much for joining me today. Are there any final words you'd like to share with our audience?
1: If you wanna um, connect with me, I am at Alicia PhD. If you wanna connect with the podcast we are
0: at the research her on
1: all the socials and at the awesome
0: and remind us what the website for the stem noir is as well
1: it is stemnoir.org
0: we at her royal science would like to end our season finale expressing our solidarity with and sympathy for members of the asian and pacific islander communities Over the past 12 months, occurrences of anti-Asian and anti-Pacific Islander hate have skyrocketed, leaving communities fearful for their own safety. We at Hersai are heartbroken by these acts of bigotry, and we pledge to continue to educate ourselves about the xenophobia directed at our brethren, also striving to create safe spaces for all minoritized individuals. If you have the ability to do so, please donate to your local organizations that advocate for the protection of the Asian and Pacific Islander communities. Organizations like Stop AAPI Hate, which advocates for local, state, and national policies that reinforce human and civil rights within the United States.